Rain. What do you want to do tonight? The same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. The Pinky and the Brain. Yes, Pinky and the Brain. One is a genius, the other's insane. The laboratory mice, the genes have despised. The Pinky, the Pinky and the Brain. Brain, 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 brain. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 12 of the Energy of Empire series. In this episode, I'm going to introduce the concept of the Anglo-American establishment, the secret society formed by Cecil Rhodes for the purpose of rejoining Britain and the United States and extending British imperial influence across the entire globe. This is going to be a brief introduction as I want to move on with examining historical events but with an awareness of this organization's potential influence. We encountered Cecil John Rhodes in the last episode. As the Rothschild financed diamond miner turned Prime Minister of the Cape Colony, who was instrumental in instigating the Boer War. Whilst he was attending Oxford University in 1877, on the 2nd of June to be precise, Rhodes wrote what he called his Confession of Faith. I will read a substantial portion of it and comment on it as I go. The confession begins. It often strikes a man to inquire what is the chief good in life. To one, the thought comes that it is a happy marriage. To another, great wealth. And as each seizes on his idea, for that he more or less works for the rest of his existence. To myself, thinking over the same question, the wish came to render myself useful to my country. In this first passage, we see Rhodes is a nationalist. He holds the expansion of Britain and its empire as the highest good. The son of a vicar, he could have talked about spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ around the world, but he does not. For Rhodes, nationalism is a religion. Country is his god. There is, of course, a striking parallel to Theodore Roosevelt here, who at the same time was trying to expand the American empire as much as he possibly could. Rhodes goes on. I have felt that at the present day we are actually limiting our children and perhaps bringing into the world half the human beings we might, owing to the lack of country for them to inhabit. That if we had retained America, there would at this moment be millions more English living. I contend that we are the finest race in the world, and that the more of the world we inhabit, the better it is for the human race. Just fancy those parts that are presently inhabited by the most despicable specimens of human beings. What an alteration there would be if they were brought under Anglo-Saxon influence. Look again at the extra employment a new country added to our dominion gives. I contend that every acre added to our territory means in the future birth to some more of the English race who otherwise would not be brought into existence. It's worth taking a moment to slide out of our modern-day mindset and into one of the 1870s. Rhodes sees the technological achievements of the Industrial Revolution and concludes the Anglo-Saxon culture must be superior. He would have seen the native Africans, by comparison, as living in the Stone Age. Rhodes goes on to explain the benefits of an expanded British Empire for world peace. The absorption of the greater portion of the world under our rule simply means the end of all wars. At this moment, had we not lost America, I believe we could have stopped the Russian-Turkish war by merely refusing money and supplies. 
To be clear, Rhodes isn't exactly talking about a world government, but rather an overwhelmingly powerful British Empire. It's the mentality of someone who believes greater centralisation of power can solve all the world's ills, absent reflection on the dangers of that power. We saw in the last episode how the desire to bring this empire about immediately started a brutal war in South Africa. At this point, Rhodes starts to develop a plan. Having these ideas, what scheme could we think of to forward this object? I look into history and I read the story of the Jesuits. I see what they were able to do in a bad cause, and I might say under bad leaders. At the present day, I became a member of the Masonic Order. I see the wealth and power they possess, the influence they hold, and I think over the ceremonies and I wonder that a large body of men can devote themselves to what at times appear the most ridiculous and absurd rites without an object and without an end. The idea gleaming and dancing before one's eyes like a will-of-the-wisp at last frames itself into a plan. Why should we not form a secret society but with one objective, the furtherance of the British Empire and the bringing the whole uncivilised world under British rule, for the recovery of the United States, for making the Anglo-Saxon race but one empire? What a dream. But yet it is probable. It is possible. Bearing in mind just a century had passed since the American Revolution, there would have been plenty of people still alive in Rhodes' day who would have known the actors involved in it. Rhodes considers it to have been a disaster. I once heard it argued by a fellow in my own college, I am sorry to own it, by an Englishman, that it was a good thing for us that we had lost the United States. There are some subjects on which there can be no arguments, and to an Englishman this is one of them. But even from an American's point of view, just picture what they have lost. Look at their government. Are they not frauds that yearly come before the public view? A disgrace to any country, and especially theirs, which is the finest in the world. Would they have occurred had they remained under English rule? Great as they have become, how infinitely greater would they have been with the softening and elevating influence of English rule? Think of those countless thousands of Englishmen that during the last hundred years would have crossed the Atlantic and settled and populated the United States. Would they not have made, without any prejudice, a finer country of it than the low-class Irish and German immigrants? All this we have lost and that country loses, owing to whom? Owing to two or three ignorant, pig-headed statesmen of the last century. At their door lies the blame. Do you ever feel mad? Do you ever feel murderous? I think I do with those men. As we saw with Theodore Roosevelt, Rhodes is playing a zero-sum game. The world is finite. One nation or culture will ultimately come to dominate, and it is essential to him that the Anglo-Saxon culture comes out on top. Put your mind into another train of thought. Fancy Australia discovered and colonised under the French flag. It would mean several millions of English unborn that at present exist. We learn from the past and we learn to form our future. We learn from having lost to cling to what we possess. We know the size of the world. We know the total extent. Africa is still lying ready for us. It is our duty to take it. It is our duty to seize every opportunity of acquiring more territory. And we should keep this one idea steadily before our eyes that more territory simply means more of the Anglo-Saxon race, more of the best, 
the most human, most honourable race the world possesses. So you can see this kind of imperialistic mindset is in part what's behind the upcoming European countries' scramble for Africa. Rhodes then develops a method. To forward such a scheme, what a splendid help a secret society would be. A society not openly acknowledged, but who would work in secret for such an object. I contend that there are at the present moment numbers of the ablest men in the world who would devote their whole lives to it. Let us form a society for the extension of the British Empire, a society which should have members in every part of the British Empire working with one object and one idea. We should have its members placed at our universities and schools and should watch the English youth passing through their hands just one perhaps in every thousand would have the mind and feelings for such an object. He should be tried in every way. He should be tested whether he is endurant, possessed of eloquence, disregardful of the petty details of life, and if found to be such, then elected and bound by oath to serve for the rest of his life his country. He should then be supported, if without means, by the society and sent to that part of the empire where it was felt he was needed. In every colonial legislator, the society should attempt to have its members prepared at all times to vote or speak and advocate the closer union of England and the colonies, to crush all disloyalty and every movement for the severance of our empire. The society should inspire and even own portions of the press, for the press rules the mind of the people. The society should always be searching for members who might by their position in the world by their energies or character, forward the object. But the ballot and the test for admittance should be severe. And so there we have it. Cecil, like the brain, was trying to take over the world. Before examining how Rhodes's master plan developed, let's look at some varied assessments of its impact on the 20th century. Given the near absence of this society from most history books, we could conclude the consensus view is that it had virtually no impact at all. The British Empire would go into a terminal decline through the first half of the 20th century, ending up as a pale imitation of its former self in the Commonwealth. The US Empire went into the ascendancy, and Britain has been a junior partner, but most definitely in the back seat. If you listen to more conspiratorial takes on history, however, you will find this society being presented as the most consequential force of the past 120 years. Take Dr. Paul L. Williams' account in his book, The Killing of Uncle Sam. The revelation that Rhodes received as a student at Oxford that spring day would give rise to the Anglo-American establishment and the mad scramble for Africa. It would inaugurate global warfare, the rise of communism, Keynesian economics, and free trade agreements. It would bring about the formation of the Pilgrim Societies, the Council on Foreign Relations, the United Nations, the Central Intelligence Agency, and the Trilateral Commission. It would produce the plague of heroin addiction, the creation of the military-industrial complex, the globalization of poverty, and the demise of nationalism. And it would result in unprecedented mass migrations, widespread coup d'etat, the onset of covert operations such as Operation Gladio, Operation Mockingbird, and Operation Condor and the emergence of radical Islam and international terrorism. Wow, that's a lot. If it's even half true, you would think the history books would be talking about nothing else. And yet, 
they're hardly mentioning it at all. It's not as if Rhodes has become an obscure figure either. Indeed, his name has been in the British press a lot over the past several years, due to the controversy over his statue's continued presence at Oxford University. Nor did the society remain secret for very long. Only ten years after its official founding in 1891, one of the founders, newspaper editor William T. Steed, published an article describing its aims. Steed had agreed with Rhodes's overarching vision, however he did not support initiating a war with South Africa to bring it about. The society was even reported on in the New York Times under the title Mr. Rhodes' Idea of Anglo-American Greatness. He believed a wealthy secret society should work to secure the world's peace and a British-American federation. I think it's fair to say Cecil Rhodes' vision did not work out in any way he would recognise or approve of. But did it die out altogether, or morph into something else? I'm now going to play a lengthy clip by one of the most prominent modern historians of this group, G. Edward Griffin. I'm not playing this clip to assert Mr. Griffin's views are true, but rather because it is a thorough exposition on how a substantial number of people perceive the importance of Rhodes as society. The rest of this series will be in part dedicated to assessing the truth or falsehood of these claims. Has a single ideologically bound group had a disproportionate influence on our world, in what would be a radical departure from accepted history, or is this claim overblown, supposing too much unity in what is really a much more polycentric power structure? As I sit here today, I lean more towards the latter view. However, this is one of the main things I want to challenge myself on throughout this series, and it may well be that my own opinion shifts as we go on. Let's hear what G. Edward Griffin has to say. It was at the end of the 19th century that a secret society was formed in England by Cecil Rhodes. Now, Cecil Rhodes is well known in history for being one of the wealthiest men in the world. He was the top political figure in South Africa uh, in prior toward the end of the 19th century. He had amassed a tremendous fortune because he had acquired control of the diamond mines and the mineral deposits, primarily the oil, de uh, the uh, gold deposits in South Africa. He had a monopoly over them, personal monopoly. You can imagine the amount of wealth untold. I don't think anybody ever knew what it was or could count it. It was very private wealth. But it was perhaps one of the greatest, if not the greatest, fortunes in the world, certainly ranking up there with that of Rothschild. What people don't know is that when Cecil Rhodes died, none of that vast fortune went to his heirs. It was all transmitted and used for the purpose of creating a secret society. And the purpose of the secret society, according to Cecil Rhodes' wills, and there were several of them, was to create an organization that would literally control the world from behind the scenes, using measures and strategies and tactics so that the rulers would never be seen. They would operate behind the scenes. They would put forth political figures and commentators and front men who would be viewed by the population as the, as the movers and shakers of society, but they really would be front men. They would be ruled from behind the scenes by the members of this secret society. And... Uh, <clears throat> 
This was uh, all outlined in five wills that Cecil Rhodes left. We know a little bit about one of those wills. It has made it into mainstream uh, knowledge because it was used to create the Rhodes Scholarship. By the way, President uh, Clinton was a Rhodes Scholar. should not be a surprise to anyone. But the Rhodes Scholarships are known, and we think that's just a means by which this uh, uh, benefactor, Cecil Rhodes, left a large amount of money so that uh, worthy students could get a good education. And it turns out that's not it at all. The Rhodes Scholarship was designed to be more or less a recruiting and training uh, arm of the secret society to look for just those young men, originally young men now, including women, who had the right characteristics, the right mindset, right worldview, who would be recruited into this uh, hierarchy and could be placed into important positions uh, in the secret society. Um, and we know about this because these wills have now been written about. I'll be quoting one of the men shortly. His name is William Stead. He was the executor of, of uh, Cecil Rhodes' estate, and he wrote a book that it revealed a great deal of information about these otherwise secret wills. Uh, this organization not only was formed at the uh, turn of the century or the end of the 19th century, but it still exists today and, in fact, has been a major historical force in all world affairs since the end of World War I. Okay. The goal of this group originally was to export the British model, the British culture, the British Empire. Cecil felt that the, that the British had the finest uh, legal system, the finest language, the finest culture, uh, the finest government in the world, and it was, he felt, their obligation, noblesse noblesse, to rule the world so that they could spread this, this wonderful culture to the rest of the world, so the ignorant masses of the world could benefit from what they had developed in England. That was his original concept, and he wanted to... Uh, to uh, do it in such a way that there would be very little, if any, resentment on the parts of the populations around the world who were being benefited by this uh, transfusion. <laughs> and that's one of the reasons for the necessity of keeping everything secret. Um, now, that evolved very quickly after Cecil Rhodes' death. It became clear that they weren't going to quite accomplish the uh, spread of the British Empire in that fashion. And by the time they took in their American partners from the United States, people like uh, the Rockefellers and so forth, this goal uh, rapidly changed away from spreading the British Empire, the British culture, to creating what they called a new world order, which was a world government ruled from behind the scenes by the secret society, but based on the model of collectivism. Now, <clears throat> the methods, very important to understand the method by which they hoped to accomplish this. Not to be done by guns, not to be done by invading armies. It was to be done through infiltration of the power centers of society. It to be done not by large numbers of people, but a very small group of people in the secret society who would consciously go into the power centers of society, move to the top, and lead the masses through the organizations to which they belong. 
the political parties, the government agencies, church organizations, labor unions, media centers, corporations, you name it. You know, people have a herd instinct. We move together. We flock together. We have leaders. We have opinion leaders. And the masses are always flocking around their leaders. And so Cecil Rhodes and his uh, companions knew this, that they were very wise to choose a strategy which said, we don't need to control the masses one by one. All we need to do is capture control of the organizations of the masses. And in that fashion, we can lead with extremely small numbers behind the scene. That is the method by which they have been accomplishing their goal. Now, the structure, very interesting. This is where it really gets off the wall. The structure that they chose was modeled directly after Adam Weishaupt's uh, Illuminati, of all things. Now, we're told today that the Illuminati doesn't exist. And I don't know whether it does or not. If it does, it may or may not have historical continuity back to the original, which was formed in 1776 uh, in, uh, by Adam Weishaupt. You know, it was supposedly disbanded in Bavaria a few years later. The Bavarian police uh, raided the home of one of the high dignitaries of the Illuminati, and they captured all of the personal papers written by the dignitaries and by Adam Weishaupt. And these are now, I believe, in the uh, London Museum or the London Library, the uh, British Library. And so uh, a researcher can go there and read these things, and I've read copies of them. And I was just amazed when I was reading through Cecil Rhodes' information to find out that Cecil Rhodes had copied the structure that Adam Weishaupt had created for his Illuminati. Now, does that mean there's a connection? No. It just means that obviously, I think it's obvious that uh, Cecil Rhodes had read the same papers I did and said to himself, this is a good idea. But what is this structure? Weishaupt called it rings within rings within rings. And what he meant by that was that the people involved in this uh, secret group were not to be aware that they were being directed by a smaller group, a smaller ring inside the outer ring. And he said that, for example, the, the leaders of the group should be the, the founder and maybe one or two of the brain trust. They would be at the, the hardcore center, perhaps the all-seeing eye, you might say. But around them, they would, they would build a, a slightly larger group of people of maybe 80 or 100 people or 200 people who would think that they were the whole enchilada. They would not know that there were three running the show from the inside, and they were not supposed to know. Maybe eventually some of the, of the uh, uh, more astute ones would be allowed to know that, and they might be recruited into the center, but most of them would not ever know in their whole lifetime. Then that group would create around itself another ring, much larger in number, perhaps several thousand people. And they would think that they were the whole show, too, not realizing that there were a smaller group on the inside controlling them. And finally, that larger ring would create another one which would reach out into mass organizations with truly large numbers of people. And for sure, most of those people would never dream in their wildest imagination that their whole structure was being directed from rings within rings within rings. And that is exactly the formula that Cecil Rhodes chose. Uh, now, the result of this strategy and these goals is that this organization remains invisible. The inner circle of this very hard-to-see group 
They call themselves the Society of the Elect. And there again, that phrase is taken directly from Adam Weissa. Amazing. Now, originally that was Cecil Rhodes and a brain trust from British banking circles and politics. As I mentioned a moment ago, that center of gravity shifted away after Cecil Rhodes' death to the Rockefeller Group. And uh, now it has centers of very strong influence in such groups as Bilderberg Group, the Trilateral Commission, and that sort of thing. And uh, it also shows up in some of the financial circles, the uh, financial meetings, the G7 meetings, G6 meetings, that take place around the world. And the goal has shifted, as I mentioned, away from the center of the British Empire to the New World Order, based on the model of collectivism. The secondary rings around this inner society of the elect, they call roundtables. That's their name for them. And these exist in the United States, Great Britain, and all of the former British dependencies. This is the outer ring. This is one more ring out. Now, the tertiary rings around the round tables were formed very quickly, and they were called, um, in, in Britain and uh, the former uh, the British dependencies, they were called the Royal Institute for International Affairs. Okay? In the United States, they didn't call it that, I guess because they figured Americans didn't care for the word royal. So they didn't use that name. In the United States, they called it the Council on Foreign Relations, or the CFR. And ladies and gentlemen, after a hundred years of penetration into the power centers of society in America, the Rhodesians, this network, now is very close to the final achievement of its goal, of total domination of government and society, politics, economics at least in the Western world. Thank you for listening. As a starting point to learn more about the society, I would recommend James Corbett's presentation, Meet Carol Quigley. Quigley is the historian most associated with the society's exposure. G. Edward Griffin's main work is called The Creature from Jekyll Island, and Dr. Paul Thompson's book is The Killing of Uncle Sam. I'll link to these and other source documents and helpful resources below. I've also now set up a subscription for the podcast. Signing up will obviously help me produce these episodes in a timely fashion. For anyone that does, I'll set up a forum and host some regular Zoom meetings where we can discuss any of the themes on the podcast, or anything at all really. If that appeals to you, then the link is in the box below, and thank you very much indeed. With Rhodes' group and others in mind, next time I'll be progressing on to examine the origins of the First World War. 